Good morning. Thank you for the birthday greetings. Appreciate that. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter two. And um, we, we just sang, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. Jesus is coming again. And that is the subject of our uh, message this morning, the coming of the Lord. Let's go ahead and uh, get the first um, slide up here. Uh, In October, I took Krista to um, Maui, and we stayed near the little town of Lahaina, which is an old fishing village. And there's there's shops on either side of the main road, and we were leisurely strolling down the road looking at all the things that we didn't want to buy. And we spotted this minivan with large posters on the sides and on the back. And then on the front windshield, held, held on to the front windshield by the wipers, were brochures that you could just take and uh, learn what this guy was trying to pedal. And on the back of the van it said this, um, Matthew 24 was fulfilled in A.D. 70. On the side of the van it said, we are not very, very bold letters, not in the last days. And then the flyers pointed people to a website where it is full of mixed up theology uh, and twisting and turning of scripture. So that was my Hawaiian vacation. This week I received a uh, um, uh, Christian magazine in the mail and there's a section in it, uh, letters to the editor. And there were two questions that were obviously written to start a spirited debate. And I'll just read a portion of the questions to you. Um, The first one uh, reads this way. Nothing in 1 Thessalonians or in any other New Testament passage teaches that Jesus will return secretly to take believers to heaven for seven years and then return with them for another thousand years. So where did the, quote, rapture doctrine come from? Jesus will never set foot on planet Earth again. He arose from the Mount of Olives at the next and only trip. All the saved will meet the Lord in the air. That's the uh, first letter to the editor. It must have been a week for uh, these letters for them. The second one said this, and I just I put this on uh, on um, a slide here that says at the top, let no one deceive you. There are a lot of deceivers uh, that are out there and they are trying to disrupt the peace of believers. So the second one was uh, about the same. It says, I just saw a trailer for a documentary that takes a post tribulation rapture position. One of the featured participants chides pastors who teach a pre-tribulation rapture for not equipping their congregations to go through the seven-year great tribulation. What is your response? And I actually like the response. I don't have it here, but it was more or less, uh, even if it were true that we were going through the tribulation, which it is not true, how on earth could anybody prepare 
somebody to go through that disaster. You can't. There's no way you could prepare for that. So our passage this morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, and the preferred reading there is the day of the Lord, had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless, and that's what we're going to look at next week, the unless part, okay? But for now, we're just going to take these first two and a half (laughs) verses. You remember, as we have studied in 1 Thessalonians, that we gave a little history of Paul's trip to Thessalonica. And uh, he came to this town, he preached the gospel, they were Gentiles primarily, steeped in idolatry. And uh, they came to know the Lord, and it says very plainly that they uh, turned from idols to serve the living and true God and um, to serve him. While he was with them, and he was there just a short time, Paul taught them the fundamentals of the faith, and included in that was some serious teaching on the second coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. But Paul had to leave, and he went on, he preached in other cities, he sent um, people back to uh, Thessalonica to see how they were doing. They came back with a report, and there were some letters back and forth, and this is the second letter answering some of the questions that the Thessalonians had. So at some point in between the letters, false teachers had come to the Thessalonian believers and had wormed their way into the lives of the believers, and they were upsetting them with false teaching. And as a true shepherd, Paul cares for the sheep, and his concern is their peace, their serenity, um, and he wants to uh, write against what is being taught to them. And so his real goal here is that in the midst of the trials that they're facing, he wants to give them comfort and hope. Uh, You have to remember that the Thessalonians were going through tremendous um, troubles. They were going through tribulation in their lives. But it's interesting, even though we could use the word tribulation, it was not the great tribulation. But in the midst of the tribulation, these false teachers came in and said, Aha, you see the trouble that you're facing. You see the difficulties that you're going through. You're in the tribulation. Get real. You're in the tribulation. What else could explain this? And so they were greatly troubled. You know, often when people are suffering, often when people go through a great trial in their lives, they become confused and easily persuaded to believe something other than the truth of the Word of God. I don't know if you've ever been in a trial in your life where you've begun to question, well, is God really going to come through for me? Is the Word really true in this instance? In this circumstance, is God really real? People face questions like that in their lives. And I want to ask you, has your imagination ever gone wild in a trial? 
Yeah? Okay, there's one honest person out there. No, <laughs> I see a few shaking heads. So I want to I illustrate it this way for you. One morning you wake up, it's just a regular, normal day, and the first thing you do is you jump in the shower, if that's your practice, and as you're bathing, you notice on your leg there's a, a lump. Well, you never noticed that before. And it's right under the skin, and you think, of course, your imagination goes right to the, to the truth, which is it has to be cancer, right? The first thing you think of, a lump under the skin of your leg, it's cancer. I'm sure of it. And immediately you think the worst. And so you get out of the shower, you sit down for breakfast, you turn on the TV, and a commercial comes on uh, about a new cancer-fighting drug. Aha! Uh-huh. It must be cancer. I just thought it was, and now there's an advertisement on TV about this new drug. And then the news comes on, because you want to catch the morning news and traffic before you go to work. And the news comes on, and they tell a story about a new study that was just released from a famous university study. And it's about a new cancer-fighting drug. You go, well, what are the chances? These coincidences can't keep happening. It must be true. And that's followed by... um, you going to, uh, oh, the, the, the news article talks about increased cancer cases in the Bay Area. Well, at this point, you're ready to check yourself into Stanford Medical Center, you know, make an appointment with Cancer Treatment Centers of America. So you drive to work and you're already thinking about chemo and radiation and all of the things that are before you. And you think, you know, is my will up to date? And you arrive at work and you sit down at your uh, desk, and as your legs swing around back to go under your desk, bam! And you, ouch! You just hit your leg, and it's right in the spot where that lump was. And you remember, oh yeah, I hit my leg there yesterday, doing the same thing, swinging around. And all of a sudden, you remember that that bump there is probably the cause. The cause of it is probably because you hit it the day before. Wow! You just had a. Uh, Close call with cancer. Pretty safe to rule it out at this point. But that's how our minds work in trials, right? You've never experienced that. I'm just talking to myself. One of my famous phrases, as Jake likes to hear, for anxious people is this. Just because you have a thought, it doesn't make it true. Okay? Think about that. Just because you have a thought, It doesn't make it true. The Thessalonians were in a trial. There was no doubt about that. But just because they were suffering and they were facing tribulation, it does not mean they were in the tribulation period. And as a tender shepherd, Paul wants to calm their fears and remind them of the truth. It's easy to be swallowed up with hysteria when we forget what the Lord says in his word. Now, brethren, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is about to write to them uh, to, to remind them of the coming of the Lord. Um, the character in Maui believes that Jesus Christ came back in AD 70 and he's still here. On the other extreme, one of the letters to the editor was from a man who believed the Lord is never coming back to the earth. So even today, these kinds of errors about the coming of the Lord are floating around, and you must have heard some of them. 
And there are many people who are very vocal about um, the coming of the Lord. But the goal of a shepherd is to bring tranquility to the sheep. And that's what Paul is doing here. And that's what our goal is today, to comfort you concerning the second coming of the Lord. Well, why do we call it the second coming? Well, it's because the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time. He already came once. He came to Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived uh, and ministered um, on earth. And he died on the cross as a substitutionary death for you. And he was buried and he rose again. All of that encompasses his first coming. Three verses come to my mind, or three sections come to my mind about his second coming. And I want to read them to you. They are meant to be a comfort to you as a believer. Jesus said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled, John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Acts 1.10, you remember the disciples as Jesus left the earth, he was uh, taken up into the clouds and uh, angels stood uh, by after that and said, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And finally, a passage we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it says in the final verse of that passage, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. So Paul had already taught the Thessalonians that Jesus was coming again. He had already taught them about the rapture. Um, and so just as a reminder, maybe for those who are newer uh, here or have not uh, studied this as, as much, uh, we want to look at a, a slide here that we used once before on the order of events in Bible prophecy. And there are two phases to the second coming of Christ. Let me make sure we've got the right one up there. Yes. Okay. So the first phase of the second coming is the rapture, when Jesus Christ comes for his church to the air. He does not come to the earth. Seven years goes by, the tribulation period. Sometimes the last half is known as the Great Tribulation. And at the end of that, Jesus comes a second time to the earth. But his coming to the rapture and his coming to the earth are considered his second coming, just two phases of his second coming. And the first um, coming to the air, like I said, it's for his church in his coming 
to the earth, it's coming, he's coming with his church to the earth. Uh, really, 1 Thessalonians 4 that we read is, is very specific about it, and so we don't really need to dwell on that. So the rapture is followed by the seven-year tribulation period, and it's a period of judgment upon the earth, a period upon which God pours out his wrath. Now, it's very important for us to remember that. The, the period of the tribulation is the outpouring of God's wrath upon earth dwellers. Stick that in the back of your mind and remember that. It's important later as we look at who's going to be there. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, verse 3, it says this, For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And I'm emphasizing they, them, they on purpose. The contrast is found in verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And so Paul, even in 1 Thessalonians 5, is making a contrast about this day, the day of the Lord. And so if we put the next slide up, we see the uh, time frame of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins immediately following the rapture. The rapture takes place. The day of the Lord starts. It's simultaneous. At the end of the seven years of tribulation... As I said earlier, the second phase of, of the second coming of Christ takes place. And it's where the Lord Jesus Christ comes in all of his glory. He is revealed to the world uh, as to who he is. He defeats his enemies and he sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. So let's fit verses 1 and 2 in this timeline. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him... That's the rapture, okay? Verse 1 is the rapture, the first phase of the second coming. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. That's the second, um, that's the day of the Lord. So Paul, in, in teaching this um, section here, is, is basically saying this, look. I've already taught you about the rapture. I've already told you that you are going to be taken up to be with the Lord prior to the day of the Lord coming. So you know that already. And he's saying to the saints, listen, how could you possibly believe that you're in the tribulation if you haven't been raptured? Okay? If the rapture is first, then you couldn't possibly be in the tribulation period. And so what has come upon you is tribulation, is trouble, but it's not the great tribulation that is coming. For believers, the second coming, that is the rapture, is a time of release. It's a time of relief, peace, deliverance, and comfort. Nowhere in Scripture do we find the coming of the Lord uh, uh, spoken of to the believers as something to be dreaded. Uh, by the church. If we go through the tribulation or even part of the tribulation, I'm telling you, that's something to dread. 
If you read about the things that are going to take place during the tribulation period, where half of the entire world's population is destroyed in a couple of judgments, it's a dreadful thing to be uh, in the tribulation period. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing to have to suffer the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. That is not the place. That is not our position as believers. And so that's what Paul is trying to emphasize here. Look, on the basis of the order of the events, the rapture comes first. It's followed by the day of the Lord. You have no fear, dear Thessalonian believers, that you are in the tribulation period because you are destined to be raptured. And so are we. But someone in Thessalonica might say, but Paul, you have to understand what happened here. Teachers came and they, they, were speak, they said they were speaking by the Spirit. They said to us that they had a word from the Lord. They were speaking, God was speaking through them and telling us something new. Imagine young believers who have just come to know the Lord and they're just beginning to study the Word of God and just beginning to understand the things of the Lord. And these teachers come in, very charismatic personalities, and they seem to have a direct pipeline to God. And they may have actually said something like this, God has shown us that the day of the Lord has begun and your tribulation proves it. Wow. I just want you to remember, Thessalonians or believers at Calvary, remember the lump on your leg. Okay? Just because you have a thought, it doesn't make it true. Apparently, another report had come to the Thessalonian church. The word on the street was that Paul had changed his tune. He had now begun to teach uh, that the day of the Lord had begun. Again, remember the lump on your leg. Just because you have a thought, it doesn't make it true. And to top it off, it seems that someone had forged a letter, signed Paul's name to it, sent it on to the Thessalonian believers. And the letter suggested that they were now in the day of the Lord. Remember the lump on your leg. Just because you have a thought, it doesn't make it true. They were all lies. But the lies were playing into the stress that the church was under uh, because of persecution. So now Paul turns his attention to the day of the Lord. You know, I want to say this to you. It doesn't take much reading, much listening uh, to Christian radio um, conferences, things like that, to come across people, teachers and preachers, who really are trying to upset believers, upset the peace that God intends for us to have. You know, I was simply minding my own business. I was taking a leisurely stroll down the road in in Maui. I was expecting to have just a joyful, sunny vacation time. And I'm... Uh, assaulted by the false teaching and the, the, the blistering signs on this guy's uh, van. And it upsets me when I see things like that. Not because I'm going to be sucked into what he's saying. I'm not. I know what he's saying is not true. I know that he's saying is false. But I'm thinking about all of the people who pass by that and go, huh, well, Christians are arguing with each other. Oh, must be false or whatever their thoughts are, they're 
upset or they're, or they're challenged in their thinking by, by these signs and by the things that this guy is promoting. It, that's what's upsetting to me. It destabilizes uh, the peace that God intends for us to have. So um, I want to think about this for a second. Paul said, when I, um, when I think about the way false teachers work, sometimes they're very blatant like this guy was. And sometimes they're not so blatant. Sometimes they're, they just come alongside, you know, they, they kind of cozy up to you and say, hey, what do you think about uh, what was said today? What do you think about the, the message? What do you think about... This teaching can't really be true, can it? And they begin to undermine and undermine and undermine. And you say, it can't be happening in the church. Oh, yes, it can. And it does. And I, I want to say this. Paul recognized that this was going to happen. And he warned the Ephesian elders about this in, in Acts chapter 20. He said this, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And these men are seeking a following. They're seeking to have people follow after them, their ideas. And it's false. Be careful. Be careful. And so when I see believers becoming agitated or becoming uh, without peace, it concerns me as a shepherd. What's going on? So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to give you reasons for the hope that is in you. Reasons, okay? And there's plenty of them. We're not going to have uh, nearly enough time this morning to go through it, but let's just take a stab at it. Why do I believe that the church will be raptured before the tribulation period and will not endure the seven-year tribulation. So many of the points that I'm going to be making here actually come from a book called Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. If you haven't heard of him or you haven't heard of the book, make a note of it. If you get a chance to pick one up, read it. It's a, it's a thick volume, all to do with the uh, future events, prophecies, and, th- and so on. Things to Come by White Pentecost. But I'm going to adapt the, the points this morning for, for the purpose of the message and say it this way. First of all, things that I believe, and I hope you do as well, okay? I believe in a literal interpretation of the Scripture. I believe in a literal interpretation of the Scripture. We, we talked about this in class a few weeks ago, and, it, and one of the phrases that we used was this. If the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. Okay? It's a, good, it's a good thing to remember. When you read the Scripture, if the first sense makes sense, don't look for another sense. A literal interpretation of the Scripture still recognizes figures of speech, parables, and so on. Okay, you still recognize those things as 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 um, um, features in in um, even in a literal interpretation. I take a literal rather than a figurative or allegorical interpretation of prophecy. And the reason I say it that way is this. Many people start off with a 
preconceived view of how things should be. And they try to make the scripture fit what they think is the right way of um, viewing it. And when they come across passages that contradict what they're saying, they start saying, well, this really doesn't mean this literally. What it really means is that, you know, uh, figuratively, it, it, it really refers to something else. And so the interesting thing is that the school of thought that is more allegorical in its interpretation of the scripture, you can't find two people that come to the same conclusion. When you start down this pathway of allegorical or um, uh, figurative uh, interpretation of the scripture, all bets are off. You can go down any path you want to. But if you stick with the literal interpretation of scripture, you're on pretty solid ground. Okay? So the second thing I believe. I believe from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. Okay? You say, why is that important? Well, we studied this when we looked uh, back at, um, I think when we were in Luke. We went back and we did a study, a quick study of the book of Daniel. And if you want to get those uh, CDs or download it from the Internet, you can do that. But just as a summary, let's take a look at this. Daniel prophesied that there are 70... uh, In fact, let's turn to the passage so you can read it. Daniel chapter 9. And we'll read verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks, and we studied, when we studied this, we, we uh, realized that the weeks here are not seven days, but they are seven years of, um, 70 weeks of years. So 70 weeks are determined for your people, who would that be? That's the Jews. And for your holy city, that would be Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring to end sacrifice and offering And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out upon, uh, poured out on the desolate. Well, we don't have time to go through it in great detail. Again, go back to the the um, tapes from before. But let me just say it this way: this section is 70 weeks or 490 years. 69 weeks of years have already been fulfilled, literally. Very literally, they have been fulfilled. And the prophecies were fulfilled right down, as we looked at when we studied this, right down to the day. 
I have every reason to believe, therefore, that the last week that has not been fulfilled yet will be a literal fulfillment, just like the first 69 weeks were. Another thing I want to point out about this prophecy and underscore this in your minds, the prophecy has nothing, nothing to do with the church. Why do I say that? Because the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was not in view in the Old Testament. And so the uh, prophecy here, the last week of the prophecy, has nothing to do with the church. The prophecy has everything to do with the Jews. He says that right here. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. That's the Jews. And, and for um, the holy city, Jerusalem. So it's important, so that's why I say at the beginning, I believe from this passage that 70 weeks are determined for the Jews and for uh, Jerusalem. Third thing I believe is that according to the Old Testament and according to the New Testament, uh, the prophecies of both of the Testaments, that the nature of the tribulation period will be a time of wrath, judgment, indignation, Punishment, it's called the hour of trial, the hour of trouble, destruction, darkness, need I go on. Okay, The scriptures are very plain about the um, conditions or the nature of the tribulation period uh, being like that. Fourth thing I believe. I believe that since the church had nothing to do with the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy... It will have nothing to do with the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, the tribulation period. Fifth, I believe that Matthew 25, Daniel chapter 2, Luke chapter 21, Mark 13, and many other passages, uh, Jeremiah 30, Revelation 7, and all the rest of it, have to do with the tribulation period and have to do with the nation of Israel. And the church is absent from every one of those prophecies. It does not fit in those prophecies. The sixth thing I believe is that uh, I believe the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That is the earth dwellers. Jesus is speaking to his church when he says that. We are kept from the tribulation period in its entirety. We are kept not only from it, we are kept out of it. That's the word in Greek, the tribulation period. We don't go through it, we're kept out of it. And the tribulation period, um, from what he says here in this passage, is... Upon the earth dwellers. Who are earth dwellers? It sounds like some kind of a foreign species or something like that. Earth dwellers. They are people whose focus is on this life, on this earth, and give no thought concerning their eternal future. People who are consumed by possessions, by things, by life itself, and have no concern about their eternity, earth dwellers, men of the world who have their portion in this life. 
I believe that Israel and the church are two distinct entities. Two distinct entities. We looked at this in um, Here's the Difference class uh, a few weeks ago, that Israel and the church are two completely separate entities. Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Earthly people. They are God's chosen earthly people who also rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah and crucified him. And we read in the scripture that God has temporarily set them aside while he reaches out to the Gentiles. Jews, some Jews are saved still. We have some in our midst. Praise the Lord for that. But by and large, the gospel is being received by the Gentiles, is being rejected by the Jewish nation. Certainly the nation as a whole has rejected Christ. Um, and um, it's, they're temporarily set aside until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, the church is made up of all believers from Pentecost until the rapture. We know that. And it is all believing Jews or Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are his heavenly people, and there is absolutely no national distinction between us. Okay, If you're Jewish today, that's your heritage. You came from a Jewish background. You came from Jewish parentage. It means nothing in the church. Right? And if I was born a Gentile, it means nothing in the church. We are one in Christ. That's what the scriptures teach. We are his heavenly people. No national distinctions. We are one in Christ. Well, we, we looked at this in the class. We noted that Lewis Berry Schaefer has 24 clear distinctions between Israel and the church. We don't have time to go through them all today, but it underscores God's program for Israel, which is not the same as his program for the church. And to put the church in the tribulation period um, confuses both programs of God working in, in the nation of Israel and the church, and it, it, it uh, creates um, confusion to the point of absurdity. All right, I believe that only parts of the church will be raptured. Now, let me surprise some of you. And so everybody lifts up their hand and goes, what? And so let me explain what, I'm, what I mean by that. When I say that part of the church, I mean the professing church. Okay? Wow. He's okay still. (laughs) The professing church. There are many people who say that they have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Many people, Jesus will say to in that final day, depart from me, I never knew you. You're workers of iniquity. They did not really come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Though they may have been part of the professing church, they were really never truly part of the body of Christ. And so the professing church is made up of true believers and false professors. Only true believers will be raptured. False professors will remain behind And the scripture is very, very clear about what happens to them. It says that they will believe a a strong delusion will come upon them and they will believe a lie. So there is no hope for them in the tribulation period. 
I believe that unbelieving Israel will go into the tribulation period. And I may say something else that will shock you today. There is no believing Israel today. You say, what? Really? If there are believing Jews today, they are part of what? The church. Okay? There's no distinction. So we can safely say that if they're not part of the church, there is no believing Israel today. And they will enter into, if they live uh, to that period of time, they will enter into the tribulation period. But different than, um, than false professors, many Jews during the tribulation period will actually come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God will be doing a miraculous work among them. He will raise up 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, who will preach the gospel, the good news of salvation, to their own people. And even in the end, when, when all else is falling apart and failing, God will send an angel to announce the message of salvation to the entire world. Many, many Jews will come to saving faith during that period of time. And will enter into the millennium under Christ's reign. I want you to think about this next point. I, I think it really is um, helpful to, to remember this. I believe the church cannot go through the tribulation because of the inseparable union we have with Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible uses a number of illustrations to describe for us what can be considered an inseparable union that we have with Christ. First of all, it says Christ is the head of the church. And it says of us, we are his body. And you cannot sever the head from the body and still remain a a, a living uh, being. it, It describes really an inseparable union. The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ and that Christ is the bridegroom. That's an inseparable union. The Bible says that the church is the building and that Jesus Christ is the foundation and the chief cornerstone. That is an inseparable union. It says he is the vine and we are the branches. That is an inseparable union. You remember, we, desc- we described this uh, a few weeks ago, that when Paul was out persecuting the church, and as he was uh, on that road where he finally met the Lord, Jesus said from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is in heaven saying this. And it's very clear from that passage that as Paul laid his hand on The church on earth, the body of Christ, he was touching the head in heaven. And and, and the Lord is inseparably, inseparably united with the church, or we are inseparably united with him. Whatever is done to the church is done to Christ. We see that from these passages. So as a result of thinking that, Thinking about that, we have to say this. If the church is to go through the tribulation period, then it faces what? Wrath, 
judgment, indignation, punishment, darkness. All those things that we talked about earlier. If the church faces that, then so does Christ, who is inseparably united with the church. It's impossible for Christ to suffer again the wrath of God. He's already done that the first time. He came and he died on the cross and the wrath of God was poured out upon him for our sins. He is not going to be punished a second time. And so as the wrath of God is poured out on the cross, the Lord Jesus cried out in John 19.30, It is finished. Or as one word really, finished. The telesai. It's over. It's done. The wrath of God has been satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And in John 5, 24, it says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes to the same Thessalonian believers, We are waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I believe that the church cannot go through the tribulation because Christ cannot be subjected to Satan's rule. They say, what do you mean by that? Well, Revelation 13.7 says this about the tribulation period, about the beast who um, will raise his ugly head during that time and who is empowered by Satan. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue and nation. The beast of this chapter 13, verse 7 is satanically empowered and he overcomes the world and he subjects the world to his rule and to his authority. If the church is in the tribulation, then the church is then subject to a new head and that would be Satan. Can't happen. We are inseparably united with Christ. And if Christ is the head and the church is in the tribulation, then it would mean that he too would be subject to Satan. It's impossible. Such a thought is absurd. When we, when we read in the scripture, Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, I believe um, in the doctrine of imminence, which is a big fancy theological word that simply means at any moment coming. Jesus may come at any moment. And that excludes the church from the tribulation. Why do I say that? It's because the scripture, the, uh, the, the prophetic scriptures point to signs of the second coming, meaning the coming of the Lord to the earth. Many signs of the tribulation period so that they will know that their redemption draws near. The Jews seek a sign. The signs are given to the Jews for that purpose. 
but no signs are given to the church. We are watching today not for signs. We are watching for Jesus. The Bible says of the Greeks, they came to one of the disciples and they said, we would see Jesus. And the church would say the same thing. We would see Jesus. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Jesus said in um, John 14, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We're not seeking signs. We're not seeking, you know, just because there are earthquakes and there are famines and there are troubles and all of these signs, these are simply shadows. These aren't the real thing. What is coming is far worse than the birth pangs that the earth is facing right now. We're not looking for signs. We know they're coming. We know that, that, that everything is pointing to the soon return of the Lord, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for Jesus. My purpose in going over these things today is the same as the Apostle Paul. And it is simply this. There are many people who claim to be Christians, who try to trouble the saints, to try to disrupt the peace and the security and the hope that we have as believers. And I want to just simply point you back to the Scripture. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. The Word of God comes back to us again and again. And so we just begin and we end the same way. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask of you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or by letter or by signs on a van or by letters to the editor or by false teachers. We could go on and on as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come or the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless, and if the Lord tarries, we'll find out what the unless is next week. Okay? Let's just close with prayer, and the meeting will be over. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for your word that is a comfort to us, a help to us. It is what gives us hope and peace and joy. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning again, we just thank you so much that you have not kept these things from us, but that you have clearly instructed us in your word. And we pray, Lord, that in light of this soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might live in such a way as to bring honor and glory and blessing and praise to him. Lord, we pray that we would not be troubled by any false teachers, moved in any way uh, from the solid position that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took upon yourself the wrath of God so that we will never face it and that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, for any here today who still have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that today might be the day of their salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.